Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 264, recorded August 31st, 2010. Side channel privacy leaking. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro.com, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. For a free trial of an Astaro Security Gateway in your business, call 877-4-ASTARO or visit them online at Astaro.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your privacy needs, protects you online, makes sure the bad guys aren't winning, and here he is, the good guy. From Security Now, our uh, Chief Security Officer, Steve Gibson of GRC.com. <laughs> the good guy. The good guy. The I'm, white shirt. I'm on your side. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Steve uh, is, uh, of course, uh, a, a, a prolific um, software writer. He's got a lot of great tools on his website, GRC.com. And we do this podcast every week now in our sixth year of covering security. So we're glad. If you're new to the show, we're glad you're here. And stand by. Stand by for revelations. Um, in a, just want a quick, quick programming note for those of you who are listening to this show. We will be doing live coverage of Apple's announcements. If you're watching live, you're wondering, what the heck? <laughs> well, normally, we do Mac Break Weekly at 11 o'clock on Tuesday. We're doing Security Now uh, on Tuesday so that we can flip-flop and put Mac Break, break Weekly on uh, for a special edition. We'll begin at 9.30 a.m. Pacific, 12.30 Eastern at live.twit.tv. Uh, Andy Anako will be covering it from his Chicago hotel room. We decided not to fly him out, if that tells you anything. Um, or not. And uh, and uh, we will have Alex Lindsay, uh, Tom Merritt, and myself will be in studio. Uh, none of us got invitations, oddly enough, to the Apple mm. event. So uh, I guess we're not on Apple's... And, and what's known nice about list. it is... Nothing is, it is ever known, but, you know, uh, there, the, the invitation had a guitar on it, so that means it's probably music. This is the mm. time of year they announced the new iPods. Apple's got a little bit of a problem. You can't really improve an iPod at this point. So you've got to figure... And you've saturated the markets. So you've got to figure oh, out but some we way. could have the screen resolution of the new phone on the iPod. I think the, the iPod Touch will be improved. Ooh, I think you're exactly right. I, I think want one. I want one. It seems likely that an iPod Touch will probably have all the features of the iPhone for the retina display, the front-facing camera, FaceTime capability. Uh, I, cool. would ex- I would expect that. Probably also the new design. But we shall see. And there have been rumors there might be a new Apple TV. They call it iTV in the rumor mill. Um, that could be a really important product, but we just don't know till tomorrow. So if you if you're curious, tune in at nine thirty uh, Pacific, twelve thirty Eastern, live TV. We'll have live coverage, watching the other people as they cover it from within. This it's that's the good news is there's a, a you know several hundred journalists typing furiously every every pearl of wisdom that drops from Steve's lips. 
The nice thing about the iPod Touch is that it won't have a 3D, 3G antenna problem. So that's, <laughs> yes. That's good. No wireless issues. <laughs> that's true. So, Steve, what are we doing today? Well, we got a great topic. Uh, this follows off of the EFF's project, uh, which they called Panopticlick. And um, it's part of a, it was, it was sort of a research project that the EFF started at the beginning of 2010, which ran for about six months and culminated in a paper which they submitted to a recent privacy, privacy conference. I, I've been sort of waiting for that to happen because I wanted the summary of, of what they learned from this experiment. And the experiment was independent of cookies and the problem we understand with cookies being used to track people, what other privacy consequences does surfing have? That is, are there other ways that identifiable or trackable data of any kind leaks from people's machines. And in, in crypto, we've talked, there, there's a term called a side channel attack or side channel leakage. For example, you might have a, a hashing function where, which you, you're using to generate a signature where you put data in and out comes a hash. And that all seems very secure, except little things like the exact timing of how long that process takes or how long aspects of it takes. Something you wouldn't even think of that's sort of completely off on the side can be used to leak information. And so the title for today's podcast is Side Channel Privacy leakage, which is things that are going on, which, believe it or not, commercial companies now exist to exploit. There's robust tracking technology independent of cookies, which works. And so we're going to talk about what those are, how good they are, what, what, what their nature is. Um, what the EFF learned through its experiment, and what people can do about it. Sounds great. I can't wait. Good stuff. Um, bizarrely enough, nothing happened in the last week. <laughs> wow. Nothing. Nothing no, happened. Se- no security news, no updates. What happened, as I was looking at the dates of these things, the the, the big news with there was a new Chrome, Google Chrome browser. There was an Apple update. There was an Adobe release. That all happened exactly on last week's podcast. Yeah, so we were, able stuff, to, yeah. we were able to cover it very freshly. Nothing since then. So we have, for the first time in a long time, no news and no updates. Um, I did want to let our, our listeners know that um, I'm very pleased with this latest Kindle, which has come out. I don't know if we were numbering them. I think... Kindle 2 would have been the successor to the little first wedgie one. Right. Um, then, of course, we had the DX, which was the big sort of trying to be a textbook, you know, a 10-inch screen, which I just I still think you need color for that. And, and you really need to be able to scroll PDFs. So I don't know how the DX is doing, but the Kindle, I guess maybe we're on the Kindle 3 now, um, is 
is smaller than the Kindle 2, same screen size, so they just reduced the the margin. It's page turn, the 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 speed at which pages can be turned is as fast as you can go with a book now. I mean, it's much faster than the Kindles have been before. And the price has dropped to $149 for a Wi-Fi-only version or $189 for the Wi-Fi plus 3G. So, uh, and in addition, Staples, the, you know, many hundreds of outlets of Staples stationery in office supply stores are going to be carrying them sometime here in the fall. So, um, I'm just, I, I love my latest Kindle 3, and I wanted to let our listeners know that that had happened yeah, this in, be case f- they, in case they were curious. Very significant product, I think, for uh, Amazon because of the price at 139 That's a very oh. compelling price. And as you say, putting it in the stores makes it accessible to anybody to hold and, and to, and I just think that uh, Amazon's responded exactly properly to the iPad challenge. Yes, well, iPad, and of course, we, we do have Barnes & Noble is right. still... On their on their trail, also trying to to you know compete with their books. And I read that Barnes and Noble had 1.5 million titles. It's like, wait a minute, that seems like a larger number than I would expect. They include the Gutenberg titles that they have, uh, the, the uh, public domain titles. The so, ones no one really wants well, to read. Well, but some people want. I mean, look, if yeah, uh, know. you know, if you're going to buy Jules Verne's <laughs> Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, you know, you're going to buy it, whether it's public yes. domain or not. Yes. Uh, but that does add considerably to the number. Good book. Um, and I did have a, a just a short, since we didn't have much news and everything, I didn't want to bog everybody down with a long spinwright story. Just a little quickie uh, that was sent through this the Security Now feedback page um, that is for this podcast. Uh, it, it started out Y-A-S-S-S, exclamation point, which then he, in parentheses, says, yet another Spinrite success story. My stepson, Matt, could not boot his Windows XP computer as it complained of a missing file. His future father-in-law lives near him and is something of a geek. He tried booting in repair mode for Windows, but that failed too. After weeks of messing around and even trying to install Linux, he called me. I sent him my Spinrite disk and it solved the problem in a little under two hours. The only downside is I had just about talked him into installing Ubuntu Linux. Now that his XP is fixed, he may not follow through. We have a little frowny face. Uh, <laughs> and he says, loves the show, John Payne, Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Keeping windows alive everywhere. At any expense. At any cost. At the, at the cost of Linux. <laughs> yes. See, we're going to get to uh, uh, privacy leakage, side channel privacy leakage, which sounds like something that might happen if you, uh, if you eat a strange food product. I don't know exactly what that is, but we'll talk about it in just a second. But first, I do want to mention our friends at Astaro who sponsor this show and have... Hey. Since uh, year one, I think. I mean, they've been a long-time sponsor. In fact, kudos to them, the very first sponsor on the Twit Network of any kind. So um, thank you, Astaro, for your long-time support of uh, security now. Do you know what Astaro is? Well, you ought to. If you're into security, Astaro is what they call a category of products called a UTM, a Unified Threat Management Box. Looks like kind of an industrial-strength router, maybe a little bit bigger, big steel case, you know, just very robust uh, inside though the, the state-of-the-art best in class in both commercial and open source security software everything you want to protect your enterprise although and i say enterprise because it really is designed for uh, businesses but 
there are a lot of home users who download the free home version of Astaro and use it as well to protect. Now, that's really the way to go. Astaro, I'll give you an example of what's inside this box. Three, one, two, three different antiviruses. Two for email, one for the web. Wow. Um, that way you're really protecting your enterprise. Um, of course, the usual, what you'd expect, a very high-end, uh, buzzword compliant, <laughs> uh, firewall, <laughs> a stateful packet inspection and all that stuff. Uh, you've got, of course, intrusion protection. Uh, even content filtering. You can, you can control your employees' use of IM, peer-to-peer networks, uh, filter websites, all of that in an easy-to-use, high-performance appliance. Now, if you'd like to see what this can do for you, a lot of businesses have turned to Astaro to protect their business. Um, call them, 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O. I know there are perhaps better-known names in this business, although if you talk to the security experts, they'll tell you Astaro. Um, but they don't, you know, they don't do all the advertising the other guys do. You don't see them at the airport every five feet. But these are the guys. A-S-T-A-R-O. Call 877, the number four, Astaro. Also, some really nice features like VPN via SSL. Um, Built-in encryption, decryption, and digital signature of email using SMIME and OpenPGP. I mean, I just go on and on and on. Astaro.com. And if you're a non-commercial user, there's a VMware appliance you can try. Or you can go to astaro.com slash security now and uh, give it a shot there. Put it on your own hardware. It's really great stuff. And even of the, even many of the Star guys have beards, Leo. They're bearded fellows. Yeah, they're 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 serious. They're unique. serious. Yeah. <laughs> this is great stuff. A S T A R O Astaro dot com. All right, time to talk leakage. Seems okay. like a personal problem, but go ahead. So I, I ran across a euphemism for this that I really liked a lot: non consensual user tracking. Mm-hmm. Non-consensual. non-consensual user tracking. Now, we know that cookies have been a long-term problem for, for many people who sort of philosophically, probably more than anything else, object to the idea that in some fashion their actions, their movements are being tracked across the Internet. The way this happens is, is is sort of never it was never intended, and we've we've covered this, so I won't go into it in too much detail in the past. We we, we we've covered it in the past, but the idea with a cookie was that it would be used for for a single website to sort of ta- uniquely tag its visitors, so that so that while they were there doing things their individual queries of for for web pages would care, would send back this tag so that the website could could the term is keep some state it would it would know that they were that that they sort of know that this was the same person who had asked for another page uh, a minute or two before if it was a, a log-on session that would allow them to stay logged on so that they could sort of introduce themselves to the website in the beginning and then and then have this sort of a persistent relationship. And we've now extended that so that, for example, in many cases you can say, for example, with eBay, you can say, leave me logged on for 24 hours. Like, you know, I want to be checking in from time to time. I don't want to have to re-authenticate myself, reintroduce myself, prove who I am with the username and password every time I click a page. Or even, even if I'm gone for 10 minutes, I want to be able to come back. So 
So, so this has become a, a mature technology, the idea of, of authenticating to a site and maintaining a relationship with a site over time. What some clever people recognized was that an, an advertiser who served ads, a so-called advertising network, who served ads to many thousands of websites across the Internet, also had cookie privileges, so-called third-party cookie privileges. When you, when you go to a site you're, and, and that site you go to, whose you know, URL is up in the title bar, that's a first-party cookie because this is the site you're visiting. But third-party content like advertisements could be served onto the same page. Well, those ads have cookie privileges, so-called third-party cookie privileges. What that means is that the, even the ad serves your browser a cookie, which is tied to the advertiser's server. And the problem is that if you go to a different site entirely, well, the first-party cookie doesn't track because the first-party cookie is tied to the site you visit, the first-party that is, is the site you're visiting. But the third-party cookie does track. That is, if you go to a different site, which is served an ad from the same advertising network, since it's coming from the same server that is the same advertising network, you'll get the same, you, you'll, you'll have the same cookie transaction. So your browser will send the cookie back to this other, through this other site, back to the advertising network and the advertising network can realize that you you're the same guy who earlier was over at this site you're now visiting that site and that is extended across the internet so that so that there's actually now an industry set up to track people and over time build a profile of them because the advertisers know what sites you go to, and so they the idea is they infer who you are from the, the collection of sites you visit, and then they're able to get more revenue from the from the the people they're selling the ads to by saying, hey, we're gonna be able to serve ads that are more relevant to the people who are viewing them because we're able to figure out things about them due to the history of where they go on the internet. Some users object to that. And so that's what's created this whole third-party cookie controversy where there are, you know, cookie crunchers and munchers and and disposers and all kinds of technology. People, many people turn off third-party cookies or they flush them uh, routinely in order to to sort of to prevent this cross-site tracking because they just object to it on philosophical grounds. Well, it turns out that cookies are only the, the cookies are I would call them I guess sort of front channel tracking as opposed to side channel tracking. The biggest problem though is that in the same way we've talked about often that the internet the original internet technology was never designed for security. Remember, it was just, it was amazing that it worked at all 
back in the beginning. And the reason we have so much problem with security today on the Internet and even with our computers is that security was an afterthought. In, the, in very much the same vein, our use of the web was never designed for privacy. There was a sort of an assumption of anonymity because you never had to declare who you were. You were able to go to websites, and we do today, without ever telling them who we are. People use funny handles to identify themselves instead of their real names. So there's sort of this assumption that of, of anonymity and of privacy. But the problem is that's more an illusion than reality. Um, the, so to say it again, the, our use of the web, the, the actual technology of the web was never designed to enforce privacy. And as often happens in the same way where the Internet in general was not designed to enforce security and it's ended up not being very, the web never really being designed to enforce privacy also isn't very unfortunately. Now, um, when I was doing some background research, I ran across some interesting other instances of side channel attacks or side channel information leakage that I thought you'd get a kick out of, Leo, as, as would our listeners. For example, it's, it's possible, it turns out, to identify individual digital cameras from from non-uniformity in their optical sensors. That is, there's something called sensor pattern noise that, that individual digital camera elements have that renders individual ones unique, such that it's, if you look at a number of pictures from different cameras... It's possible, absent any other information, to determine which cameras took which pictures. Even though they're completely, they're pictures of completely different things, there's, there's just tiny, there, there's, there's so much resolution now in cameras, so much bit depth that variations in, you know, imp, slight imperfections in the, um, in the actual optical sensors are enough to identify cameras. And in a very different sort of approach, because lenses are not absolutely perfect in their production, it turns out that there's there's a different technology that can be used to identify individual cameras from lens aberration, which can be determined, you know, through fancy math, looking at the result of pictures that are being taken with cameras. So, that, so there's an, an, an instance of, of information leakage due to, due to something completely different from, from what the camera, for example, is normally doing, yet you can, you can, through data processing, you can look at variations among these things which which are you know not the normal information that the the, the, the device is is designed to to um, capture and record, which tells you something about it that the, the designers never intended. So 
a web fingerprint or a browser fingerprint is is information which is escaping from our use of a browser when we surf the internet, which we're not aware of. So every query which our browser makes to a server contains, by definition, sort of as part of the specification of the way the HTTP protocol works for communicating with servers, contains a bunch of headers. And we've, we've talked about headers in general many times in the past. A cookie is a, is, a, is a type of header. But one of the other headers, which is, is included in every request that a browser makes to a server, is the user agent. That was something which the, the very first browser contained. It was sort of a declaration of this, it's like the browser's name, you know, Mozilla. The, it might be the browser's version number. Um, many non-Mozilla browsers, like Internet Explorer, for example, still has the word Mozilla in it last time I checked because some software just sort of assumed that anything that was going to be surfing the web would have the word Mozilla in it because Mozilla and uh, was like in, in the very first browser. And so software just sort of looked to see if it was there. And so for compatibility's sake, when, inter- when, when Microsoft came along with Internet Explorer, they said, well, we better put Mozilla in here, even though we're not Mozilla, just so that we're recognized as a browser. A lot of browsers still do that. I was just always wondered why that was. Now I understand. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, just this morning, I looked at the headers, which my browser is adding to every query. And my user agent header reads Mozilla slash 5.0, open parens, Windows, semicolon, capital U, semicolon, Windows NT 5.1, semicolon, EN hyphen US, meaning US English, semicolon, then RV colon 1.9.2.8, close parens. Then it says gecko slash 2010, which is 2010, then 0722, which looks like a date. Then Firefox slash 3.6.8, open parens, dot, NET space CLR, which is the .NET common language runtime. And then 3.5.30729, close parens. The point of that is that that doesn't uniquely identify me and my browser, but it provides a lot of information. Other people using this, other people will be using different versions of Firefox, will have, you know, a different version of the Windows common language runtime. Mine was, this was, was RV must be runtime version, I guess. Uh, 1.9.2.8. So those numbers will vary. 
Other people using Firefox will be on different platforms. So it won't say Windows. It might say Mac OS 10. It might say Mac OS 9. It might say Linux or, you know, distributions. So the point is that innocuous as it was always intended to be, this user agent field provides an abundance of information. Not unique, not so far, but there's a bunch of stuff there, which you could argue we don't really need to tell anybody. Yeah. It's like, whose business is all of that? Well, you know, what purpose does it have? So, so there's one header. Another header, also part of every query, is the accept header, which is a way for my browser to say to the, to the server, I'm going to accept the following stuff, the following formats. And for, for example, mine says text slash HTML, comma, application slash XHTML plus XML, comma, application slash XML, semicolon, Q equals 0.9, comma, uh, star slash star, semicolon, Q equals 0.8. And again, there's just a lot of stuff there. It turns out that different browsers have those comma delimited things sometimes in different orders. There's an, there's an implication of, of, huh? the or, the, of the ordering being sort of the order in which the browser would, would sort, of, sort of a hierarchy of priorities. These queues are quality fields. They, may, they might differ from, from one browser to another or platform to another. So there's still more very specific information which can vary from from one one user to another again not unique i'm sure many people have exactly the same accept header but theirs may be different in a in a way that the user agent header the prior one i talked about isn't so now we sort of have orthogonal information we've got two things that may be independently different, creating a constellation of, of possibilities that begins to narrow down the field among all the people making queries to the server. And this information is just, it's sent out every time we contact the internet. Every time the browser makes a query, that stuff goes out. And then there's the accept language header, Mine, that's a separate header. Mine says EN hyphen US. So that's, you know, US English. But many people, you know, that's clearly language based. So there's many languages spoken all over the world. There, I mean, and even different subsets of English are being spoken. So, so that's going to vary from one user to another. So that, that's a, a sample of just the, the simple information in just in the headers, the so-called query headers that go out every time we make a query. So how effective is this kind of information? And there's, we're going to be talking more about much more sort of detailed leakage that occurs. But this is effective enough in aggregate and, and what we'll be talking about in a minute that there are now a handful of companies which have set themselves up to offer robust 
commercial solutions as sort of as a third party entity to companies who have decided they're willing to pay for something beyond cookies. They're willing to pay for what I would call euphemistically non-consensual user tracking. There's a company called Arcot that claims it's able to get this, ascertain the PC clock, the, the, the personal computer clock's processor speed, along with other common browser factors to identify a device. So, so they've got a means for figuring out how fast the crystal is running in the PC. Again, many people have the same clock frequency on their, you know, on their processors. On the other hand, we know that there's a wide range of processor speeds, you know, down below one gig and, and up to 1.5 or two or, or three or higher. So this just provides one more parameter that can be locked onto, that can be used to to uniquely identify users, not not individually, but it's another parameter. There's a company, speaking of parameters, called 41st Parameter that actually looks at more than 100 parameters mm. fr- from people who are using the Internet. And at the core of their algorithm... They have a what they call a time differential parameter that, get this, measures the time difference between a user's PC's time of day clock down to the millisecond and, wow. a, and, and, and a universal time reference. So just, I mean, I, I know, for example, when I'm sometimes buying things on eBay, I, I like to swoop in at the last literally at the last few seconds and put in a bid so that I'm not, you know, jockeying back and forth with somebody who also thinks, oh, well, if he's going to bid up, I'm going to, you know, outbid him a little bit more. So I'm very conscious of synchronizing my computer's clock to a, a, a universal standard. And I notice that from, from day, you know, I leave my computer on typically 24-7. So after a few days... It'll have drifted a little bit, and so I have to I resynchronize it to a, a strong internet reference in order to be have to have the same clock that's synchronized with eBay, so that we're in agreement about when the auction is closing. So, so again, something like that, just something like your your how far off your computer's clock is from from universal standard gives them one more parameter that they can lock on to. There's a company, and I love this name, called Threat Metrics, um, which claims to be able to detect irregularities in the functioning of the TCP IP stack, the TCP protocol, the Internet protocol stack, which they say allows them to pierce through proxy servers. Proxy servers is a you know we've talked about proxy servers the idea being that your query goes to a proxy server which then reissues the query on your behalf well as you can imagine since your browser is not then directly connecting to a web server running through a proxy server would tend to anonymize you to some degree um and in fact 
you know, there were have been companies called anonymizer.com, for example, that, that whose business was to attempt to provide anonymy, uh, anonymy, anonymity. Anonymity. I've got anonymy. <laughs> <laughs> to provide anonymity that you wouldn't otherwise have specifically by insulating you from from directly connecting to web servers. So, but, you know, these guys say we can we can pierce that. And then there's one final company, Iovation, which provides device tagging through something called LSO, Local Shared Objects, that we'll talk about in a second. That's that technology that is built into Flash. And what they say is clientless fingerprinting, meaning nothing running over on the client side. And their big claim to fame is they operate a, quote, reputation database, which maintains data on millions of PCs. So they're fingerprinting us and building a repository, a database of millions of PCs, and then they sell this information um, to third parties. So, so this stuff is effective enough that, that commercial companies now exist to, to sell these as, as services. So let's step back and look at this uh, panopticlick experiment, which was done during the first half of 2010 by the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation, EFF. Um, the result of this first half year was a paper that they submitted to the Privacy Enhancing Technologies Symposium, PETS, which was held in, in, uh, in Berlin um, this just last month, J July 21st through the 23rd. During the course of the first half year, this panopticlick.eff.org website was visited by 470,161 web browsers. So 470, a little over 470,000 web browsers, just shy of half a million. The, the code which the, the Panopticlick site ran in people's browsers and, and also collected passively from their browser. Tell me it's not Collect JavaScript. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. We got a lot of JavaScript in here. Um, JavaScript is not our friend, when, unfortunately, when right. it comes to privacy. So passively, the user agent field that I talked about before that's just sent with every query was used. The HTTP that accept header that I talked about was used. They also looked at whether cookies were enabled or not, which I thought was interesting. Again, not necessarily the cookie itself, but whether the cookie had been disabled. Just a binary, just yes or no, because many people, you know, by default, cookies are enabled. So, so many people who visited had cookies enabled. Many people who visited had them di manually disabled. But what that provided, and we talked about this incidentally, like last week when we were talking about uh, an answering one of the Q&A questions, somebody was asking about, you know, this notion of entropy. Well, every bit that you add divides the world into half again. Those with it set, those with it not. So just noticing whether cookies were enabled gave them one more bit of information. 
Then the screen resolution. They ran JavaScript. When you visited this panopticlick.eff.org site, JavaScript was, you know, run as part of what the browser did. You know, pretty much everywhere you go now, JavaScript is running when you go to someone's site. So that's not unusual. This JavaScript looked at the screen resolution and reported that back. Because, again, additional information about the user. Many, many people have the screen resolution of other people. But there's also many different screen resolutions. So it's a nice metric for disambiguating a given user because a given user generally has a fixed screen resolution. That is, if you're using a laptop, you're going to be using that laptop's native screen resolution almost without fail. And most desktop systems aren't changing their resolution a lot. They've got whatever, especially now that we're in the land of LCDs, once upon a time with CRTs, there, you know, the resolution was a little more dynamic. Now, you generally run at the same resolution as your LCD panel because that's the way you get the right, you know, a good-looking screen. So, lots of people have different resolutions. Another, another sort of data point. Then JavaScript was also used to report the time zone, which I think is very clever. You know, we got 24 hours in the day. Time zones are going to be 0 to 23. What's your offset from UTC? One more piece of data to collect. And then a, a, a huge amount of information was available from, again, thanks to JavaScript, which enumerated the browser plugins and the versions. So all kinds of us have different browser plugins like Flash, like Silverlight, like Adobe Reader that, that is, has, has, a, has a, a browser plugin component so that we're able to view PDFs in our browser. And, you know, Firefox users have a, have probably have a handful of different plugins, um, you know, Firefox add-ons. And each of those has a version number. And what was I thought was really interesting was that these guys recognized the versions were so specific now, and I mean, people probably are, are you know, used to hearing me talk about version 1.2.3297.5265. You know, I mean, it sounds like a star date. Um, there's, it's so much resolution, so, so many digits in there that, you know, these guys, the, the EFF guys call them micro versions, you know, because they're, they're subversions of, the major version, but again, that's information. Many people will have that same version, except many people, not many people will have the entire constellation that I've just run through. Oh, and the last thing was system fonts. One other thing that, that differentiates computers is what fonts they have installed. And it turns out that the way that the fonts are enumerated when you step through them, file system variations, sometimes the fonts come out alphabetically, oftentimes they come out in the order they were installed. And the installation order sort of tells you a little bit about the history of that machine. So that's going to be different from one machine to another and generally static. 
It's not going to change from one time you ask to the next. So aggregating that information, and, and it's worth noting that there's many other things that, that can also be um, locked onto. That w- I'll sort of wrap this up by talking about other things. The EFF guys recognized and acknowledged that they did, this wasn't an experiment to like develop a commercially robust solution. They just kind of wanted to get some idea of if they did those things, how unique were the visitors who came by? What kind of a fingerprint would that, would that information allow them to build? So browsers without Flash or Java Browsers that didn't have either Flash or Java, 83.6% of the browsers that visited their site had an instantaneously unique fingerprint. Wow. 83.6. No cookies. Not using cookies. Just this other stuff. Passively acquired, thanks to JavaScript, passively acquired, 83.6%. And of those that were not instantaneously unique, um, 5.3% were only confused with a second browser. That is only, so, so there was, um, there, if it wasn't unique, then there were, uh, then 5.3% only shared a, the same fingerprint with one other browser. So what that resulted in was 18.1 bits of entropy. That is, the, the, the fingerprint that they were able to obtain essentially gave them 18.1 equivalent bits. And what that meant was that they had a they were that that technology gave allowed them to disambiguate one browser out of out of a set of 286,777 hmm. that is to say that there were you know that many bits is was equal to 286,777 meaning that a given browser could be pulled out of a set that size without flash or java now most of us have flash and as as we know most of us have java with the additional help of flash or java which is present in most of our systems that 83.6% jumped to 94.2%. So 94.2% of browsers were instantaneously unique and among those that were not only uh, um, 4.6% were only seen twice. So there's only a, a confusion of one other browser um, out of that 94.2. So that brought the, the level of entropy up to 18.8 bits or 1 in 456,419. So hugely discriminatory. Now, um, oh, and when you had Flash or Java, then only 1% of browsers 
had anonymity sets larger than two. That is to say, out of 100% of the browsers that visited, only 1% were not unique. Um, um, only 1% were, would have been confused with more than one other browser. So this is phenomenal. I mean, you you don't need to say anything to an advertiser or or anyone with a, with an interest in tracking you, which never no one is assuming it's a hundred percent. But but here we're at like ninety nine. If you add ninety four point two to four point eight, what do you get? You get ninety nine percent actually. Yes, good enough for most. That, I would say. So, yeah. Yeah. So so. Um, and that follows because it was, that one percent was not it, it would it was not um, specific to um, le- less than two browsers. So, so what they learned was that without using cookies, with with no cookies at all, just uh, looking at passive browser headers and with the help of of JavaScript that was able to enlist. The help of Flash and Java, which would and, and Flash and Java, by the way, were used for the for the system font enumeration. JavaScript was able to be used for returning screen resolution, time zone, and the and enumerating the the browser plugins and versions. So, all without Flash or Java, that got them to the eighty three point six level. Flash and Java, which uh, added the system font enumeration, brought them all the way up to. If you if you if you're willing to to go for uh, uh, a, a instantaneous unique browser, that brought them to the 94.2 percent. Now, what they did recognize was that fingerprints are going to evolve over time. That is, you know, my system when I went to Panopticlick middle of this period, probably back in March, would have had a given fingerprint. I was one of those many browsers that went. But then I, you know, updated to a new version of Firefox. Well, that would have changed my fingerprint somewhat. Or NoScript came out with a new version. So I updated that. And that would have changed my NoScript plugin. But what they recognized was because they weren't just mashing all this together, that is, they didn't take all that and, for example, hash it into a an opaque token they kept all that separate which allowed them to track the changes that is they knew when i updated my version of firefox Uh, because only that one thing changed so they can update the database yes and what they found was that that now here they did use third-party cookies to per, to create a persistence among visitors. So because they were just doing this for, for collecting data. So of the eighty, the, um, there were there were eighty eight hundred and thirty three browsers which accepted cookies, and which returned several times during this testing phase over a period of more than twenty four hours. Of that. 8,833 browsers that were where they were able to give them a persistent cookie. And that's what allowed them to recognize uniquely, guaranteed uniquely, when that one browser came back to their site sometime later, more than a day later, 
over the course of several times, um, 37.4% of the time, there was a fingerprint change. And get this, they were able to guess correctly, not not taking advantage of the cookie, but just looking at the evolution of the fingerprint, they were able to lock on and hold on to the person 99.1% of the time they guessed correctly about what what change the fingerprint had made and they were able to still lock on to the return visitor only using their fingerprint and their false positive rate of of guessing incorrect was 0.86% so that what that told them they used the they used the cookie in order to accurately track people so then they were able to look at the fingerprints and track the changes and what they saw was that little tiny changes were being made over time and that they were able to to move to sort of move forward with versioning of these things in order not to have sort of a synchronization lock lost just using these um, these features that they were tracking. So, let's see. Explicit channels. We know about explicit channels as opposed to side channels. You know the 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 HTTP browser cookies, standard web browser cookies, is an explicit channel for tracking. Now, less well known, but arguably still explicit, is the Adobe Flash so-called super cookies. Those are regarded as super cookies because we now know many sites are using them. Many, there are some commercial services, in fact, which are now uh, falling prey to lawsuits because people are arguing that, that they've deliberately flushed their cookies because they don't want to be tracked. Yet there are, there are businesses that are selling the reconstitution of of deleted cookies by using flash cookies. Um, it is possible to disable flash cookies, but they are enabled by default, and there's no convenient user interface. The browser interface doesn't allow you to block flash cookies. You've got to go to Adobe and go through some hoops in order to find the UI, which is not easy to find, in order to get there and turn this off, which means... It's a high bar that most people don't climb. So side channels, aside from those those two explicit channels, we've got the standard leakage of browser queries. And remember, none of this was designed for privacy. It was just designed to work. And consequently, it doesn't really give us much privacy. So we know about the, the accept header, which the browser, the browser sends out, and the user agent. Then there's this this micro version information where we're like providing too much, you could argue, versioning information because it makes individual systems very unique. And this information is available to servers. Then whether cookies are enabled or not, not even what the cookies value is, but as we said before, whether cookies are on or off divides the universe into those with it on and those with it off. So if all other things, if all other fingerprinting information was the same, 
one person might have turned their cookies off, and that would differentiate them <laughs> from the person who hadn't. You can't win. <laughs> you know, exactly. Whether images are enabled or not. Some people surf with images off. Some people fake their user agent because they think they're being clever, except it turns out... That's that worse because you have an uncommon user agent. Yeah, exactly. It turns out that that there's other information about things like, get this, Leo, brow, different browsers issue the, the query headers in different sequences. Uh. So even the sequence of the of the browser headers tells you it's a way of fingerprinting the browser. So if the sequence of the headers doesn't match the user agent, well, that tells you the guy's got a, a spoofed user agent. Right. So, bing, there's another piece of data <laughs> about this guy. Really, if you think about this... It, it, it... It's it's almost obvious, and and really the only reason this comes up now is because there's such demand to track people. I mean, yes. of course your computer's unique when it goes out in the world. Yes, there's just too many things about it that are not like that are not exactly like somebody else's computer. You know how many screens you've got, what right. their resolution is, even and we've seen this before. There's a privacy problem with with CSS and with browsers because they color the links differently, <laughs> whether you, whether you visited things or not. Right. It turns out that scripts are able to determine the link coloration, which is one other piece of information. It's even possible by looking at what your browser fetches. To infer what's in its cache and what's in your oh, browser wow. cache. Oh, my goodness. Uh-huh. <laughs> what's in your browser cache is different from, what, from what's in somebody else. Oh, you use that picture? Huh. Well, we know it's not you then. <laughs> exactly. Wow. If your browser makes a request, it's because it doesn't have it. And once it does, it doesn't ask for it if you give it a, 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 a link. And we haven't even talked about IP. We know that IPs are not unique, but they're dis they're certainly less than random. Right. You know, many people notice that their IP drifts around. Maybe you know how 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 IPs are four bytes. Well, the first couple bytes, if you're using a given um, internet service provider, they never change because that that ISP is assigned a, a big block of IPs, but it's only the least significant bytes that change. So there again is another valuable piece of information, doesn't uniquely identify you, but when combined with everything else, it provides many more bits of information. And the EFF didn't even use that. Wow. You know, so that's not even part of what they, I mean, that would have been a, a bonanza right. of additional disambiguation had they taken advantage of, of IP. And then things like clock skew, they didn't use that, but we know that there are people who do. So, so one of the interesting things is that, you know, certainly we know there are people who do not want to be tracked. Paradoxically, as we just noted with the example of faking your user agent, which some people do, if you do things like that to try to, to obscure yourself, you're actually identifying yourself. You're pulling yourself, you're, you're creating something which is different from everybody else who is otherwise just like you, which now identifies you. 
even though you did something trying not to be identified. So it sounds like the real problem is how much is, is available through JavaScript calls, how much information about the machine. It seems like a lot of that doesn't need to be revealed. Correct. I would, I would argue one, in, the same, in the same vein of no script being valuable because it, it prevents scripting unless you know you need it. The fact is not running with JavaScript certainly enhances your privacy also because to the degree that there are companies that are feeding JavaScript through ads and ads run JavaScript just like anything else, to the degree that there are third parties that are injecting JavaScript into your browser session for the purpose of collecting this information and using it for non-cookie-based side-channel privacy tracking, um, not having scripting is a benefit um, for privacy. Now, what's interesting is that people will who like say, well, I, I want to increase my privacy, so I'm going to I'm going to flush my cookies. The problem is, as we now understand, cookies are if they're available very powerful. I mean, they were built for tracking, so many people turn them off, or many people flush them from time to time, thinking, okay, now I've, in flushing my cookies or deleting them, I'm, I'm starting with a clean slate. Eh, not so. The problem is that if you had cookies enabled and you were on the net, then someone somewhere is building a sophisticated fingerprint and the cookie. That is, they're, they're happy that you're accepting cookies, but they're not only relying on that. They're also building one of these fingerprints on the off chance that you're going to delete the cookie. So imagine this sequence. You're, you're cruising around, um, and of course, you know, DoubleClick, for example, is serving... Um, ads and maybe running some scripts to, to do what they can to track you. You then decide, I'm going to delete my double-click cookie because I want them to, to forget who I am, to lose track of me. So you delete your cookie, you shut down your browser and you restart it, and you go back on the net. The instant you hit a site that is served by double-click, double-click sees you don't have their cookie anymore, but... They've got your fingerprint, which hasn't changed over the course of that, you know, shut down your browser and restart. So they've still got a hold of you and, and give you a new cookie tied to you just as much as the prior cookie was. So, so the lesson here is if you are, well, okay, part of the lesson is just give up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they're saying in the chat room right now, well, we can't even watch this show without using JavaScript. Right. So, so, so in my conclusions, and in my own notes here, I said, for now, you know, maybe don't worry about it. Um, these things are probably going to get better. I would say the takeaway from this podcast is appreciate what's being done, understand what's being done, and behave accordingly. You, 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 want to, you want to recognize that this is what's going on, unfortunately, 
that un- that also unfortunately our computers are just bleeding information about us as we use the internet it's i mean it's pouring out of of every contact we have with websites all of this is available so rather than imagining that you are not trackable or that you're achieving something from deleting your cookies recognize that that you've lost that battle <laughs> it's too late it's too late and uh, and just so so set that expectation as being the case and behave accordingly don't do things where it's important for you to have anonymity that you actually don't have but i would also s- suggest that resistance is not futile that that you know Putting up some barriers is a useful thing to do. If you really were serious about not being tracked, what we have learned from all this is don't just change one variable. Don't just delete a cookie because everything else is still there. Don't just um, change your your, your user agent. Don't just change your screen resolution. Don't just change one thing because the technology that has been developed will track small changes. It'll jump, just as the EFF demonstrated. They're able to straddle small changes. What you really need to do is make a big change to your system at once, like uh, download a bunch of updates and apply them all at once, and suddenly your system looks like a very different machine than it did before. Maybe change your screen resolution at the same time for a while. Just randomize everything. You know, exactly. Try to make the largest change you can, and that'll throw off anybody who's trying to build, who's trying to track an incremental um, fingerprint over time. But um, this is truly happening, this kind of side channel privacy leakage. I mean, where they're looking at the how far your time of day clock is off and and actually collecting that information and using it as one more piece of data to differentiate you, to disambiguate you from all the other people on the net. Isn't that incredible? It's it's a neat uh, exercise. It's a <laughs> I hack. like that it's part. It's a great hack. Yeah. Uh, I find that fascinating. Uh, do we know if people are using these uh, techniques? In, yes. Uh, they are. Commercial companies ha- are have stated this is what they're doing. We know that this is mm. being done. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess uh, people who say privacy is dead, get over it. You know, have another uh, bullet in their gun. Yeah. Um, and, and you can't not use Flash, uh, Flash or, or uh, JavaScript. Eventually, you know, you, you're going to have to turn it on on some sites. Oh, I for one, you know, I mean, I'm annoyed I don't have it on my iPad. Right. So here I'm annoyed that I don't have something trying to Bad. tattle on. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, Steve, always fun to hear these stories. I don't know what we do about it. It really, it really, the, the key was when they designed JavaScript, they did a very, very poor job because they allowed it to uh, query too many uh, system variables. Well, it's code, and we want it wants to be powerful is, enough yeah. to do like things that Google is doing right. these amazing things with JavaScript. But that also means that you can do things like you know report your screen resolution. Right. And, and there's some personally, it's not, it doesn't now, none of this identifies you personally. It doesn't know your name, your street address or anything else, but you know, we've already been there. To. Exactly. It's just trying to, it's trying to profile you to determine what your profile is. And we do unfortunately know that there are 
other in, the other means for them to figure out who you are because this fingerprint that you carry around you have when you're on eBay when you're on your banking site when you're other places now banks are apparently using this to help with fraud prevention they're using these fingerprints on our behalf to as additional verification that we are the same person that we oh, said yeah. we were last month. Sure. So you you could see a, a positive benefit to it unless there's a relationship where the bank or some other organization that you have identified yourself in the physical world to, they could be selling that information back to these um, um, aggregating tracking companies. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we know that's been done in the past also. So it may not be that we're as anonymous as we wish we were. There you go. Yep. Steve Gibson is the uh, the guy in charge at grc.com, where you'll find no tracking cookies of any kind, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, well, uh, only for the purpose of illuminating what's going on for our users. I do have, and not yet public, a very nice third-party um, uh, uh, cookie monitoring facility that allows you it shows you what your browser settings are and that'll be going public soon if the technology's been oh, finished nice. for, for quite a while oh that's cool grc.com yeah. lots of free stuff there of course there's also spinrite steve's bread butter his day job the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility you can get it at uh, grc.com you can also participate in the show in a lot of different ways we've got 16 kilobit versions there of the show for people who are bandwidth impaired transcripts. You can leave feedback or ask questions at grc.com slash feedback. In fact, next week, Steve will be answering questions. So uh, that'd be a good time to do that. Um, and I guess that, uh, that's and a everything. a bunch of freeware, freeware and good stuff. And really yeah. good stuff, yeah. grc.com. Follow Steve on Twitter. He's there. He's tweeting. And uh, his handle on Twitter is at sggrc. He also has a, an account for pad and tablet-related stories, SGPAD, and then the corporate account is Gibson Research. When he goes, he goes whole hog. <laughs> Steve, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.